Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. My name is Dario Linares, and down the line, of course, is my good friend Neil Fox. Neil, great to speak to you again. Really lovely to talk to you, and uh, nice that it's only been a few days since we last spoke. Yes, indeed. So this is the first episode that is airing that has the material from uh, Filmstock 12, which is the uh, film festival that you have just organised or you've just finished delivering. You know, the organisation of film festivals does take a lot of time. Um, So, yeah, do you want to sort of uh, tell us a little bit about that? We've got various episodes coming from uh, Filmstock, but maybe just sort of give a little trail as to what people can expect. Yeah, so Filmstock 12 is an independent film festival that I've co-directed with Justin Doherty. And uh, we've just done a 10th anniversary edition, which took place over four days in Luton, my hometown and Justin's hometown. And yeah, we we recorded a lot of stuff. Uh, You were there all weekend, which was great. And you recorded some interviews with some of the independent filmmakers who were in attendance for a variety of films. So that'll be an episode that will go out and we'll talk more about film stock there where you'll kind of grill me on running a film festival I'm sure and <laughs> yeah I'm sure I will and uh, but uh, we also did some long form conversations so it was a really lovely weekend spent time with Jeannie Finley who's been on the pod before Kieran Evans who's also been on the pod before and kind of just getting really in, in depth about their work and uh, I spent time having a conversation with MR Carey uh, also known as Mike Carey who was the screenwriter for The Girl with All the Gifts and is a, a really amazing comic book writer and novelist. So that was that. those three will be kind of standalone episodes because the, they were just really great conversations. And then the fourth one was, was a conversation with someone that our listeners will be very familiar with, which was Mark Jenkin. And we thought we'd get this one out to uh, coincide with the end of year hurrah for uh, bait, which seems to be occurring right at the moment that we record this. Yeah, indeed. Just this morning, the uh, Sight and Sound poll has come out and Bait is number eight in that, which I'm kind of, you know, again, it goes back to my lists and awards. You know, I don't know whether aversion is the right word, but just, just sort of questioning of what they do and what they're for. But it's kind of good and bad. I, think. I mean, it's amazing that the film is on there and I think it was always going to be quite high up considering, you know, the readership of Sight and Sound and the amount of uh, publicity and how well Bait is done and how good a film it is, never mind all that. But then, you know, you see other films around it and then you have your questions about, you know, how, how such lists are, are set up. But yeah, and then there's also the um, Independent Film Awards this Sunday. So, And then last night it won uh, Best British Film at the Screen Daily Awards and the BFI won Best Campaign. So... It's yeah. It's a it's another moment in a year of moments for for Mark and and the team. Yeah, and so it was it was great to get him back on the uh, podcast because obviously he's been very busy throughout the year and he's he, he sort of has been on quite a bit, hasn't he? Pre bait, but but then you know his uh, he, the campaign and the success of the film has, has dragged him in in brilliantly in so many different places and spoken to so many different people and it was really nice to 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 get him back and have that that time to chat and I had some I had approaches to what I wanted to say to him to try and pull him into into different directions which was really nice and he was as forthcoming and he's really sort of you know he's a seasoned campaigner at the Q&A circuit now which is great be interesting to listen back to the the short chat that I had with him at Berlin just after the you know just before he left after a whirlwind few days of of screenings there and 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 sort of compare how he's talking about the film now to how he talked about it 
as it was just kind of exploding back then. Be interesting to see. Yeah. yeah, it's he's it's great because obviously he's got there is a narrative that he's built up from doing it for so long, but it never feels like he's churning out the old answers. You know, he's deeply passionate and thoughtful about his work and the film, which is which is great. And uh, yeah, I think that the conversation that that you had with him at, at Filmstock was was a really really great one, um, touching on a lot of things, which was not just about bait, but kind of bringing some of that stuff up that we've known for a long time about his work. You know, up to the point of where bait kind of puts him in a different space and, and kind of brings him to a much wider attention. Yeah, I think that's that, that's right. And I, I always had that that attention because obviously the, there are lots of Q&As now. You can look at YouTube with the 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 more mainstream lights than us, let's say. But I, I think the, the one thing that I really liked about this is I think that Mark sort of recognises the, the history and the, not just the history with the podcast, but the history of with you and I in terms of we, you know, we taught at the same university and we come from a, a, a similar sort of, I don't want to say level, but but appreciation and understanding of that there is a, a British film industry and a sort of, I don't want to say a clique, but you know what I mean? There there are there are circles that one that one runs in. And Mark Mark is definitely now in a in a different circle, let's say, because you know, he's got the potential to be because of bait. But or I think a, a different layer of uh, Dante's Inferno. Yes, yeah, maybe so. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really fascinating to speak to him about about that and and where he's going to go in his career because there are, you know, off, off mic, you know, he he sort of talks about some of the uh, some of the difficulties that 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 is bringing. But again, I think he's very forthright in in what he says, particularly around politics. So um, I think we'll get straight into it, Neil. Yes, rather than and then we can talk a little bit more about about what he said afterwards. So. This is myself talking to Mark Jenkin at Filmstock. So, welcome to the Cinematologists at Filmstock, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Mark Jenkin. Thank you. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's great to talk to you. You know, now gallivanting around the cosmos. Um, yeah, I didn't really know how to start. I mean, obviously, we're going to talk quite a lot about bait, maybe a little bit later on, but we'll talk about your other work. Um, but I want to start by sort of taking you back to February the 9th. And you and I and your team were in the foyer of the Film Palace in Berlin. Yeah. And I just wondered if you sort of thought back to that moment and was, was that a sort of seminal moment and now we're coming to the end of the year, have you had a chance to kind of just sort of look back at what's happened over the past year? Yeah, I, I, I keep thinking back, was it, was it the ninth? I keep thinking it's the 10th. Oh right, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I yeah, thought I mean, it was the night for my diary, but there we go. I mean, that, I do keep thinking back to that because that was the, yeah, the, the world premiere. And so it would have been special whatever happened, but because the film sort of blew up from there, it is... Um, yeah, it's got a kind of special time, even if I can't quite remember the date. Yeah. But it was, uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I saw. I think I saw you outside, didn't I? And there was a yeah. massive crowd outside the cinema. Me and my partner Mary had just arrived in the hotel opposite about half an hour before. Yeah. And then walked across the road to the, and there was just crowds of people outside. Yeah. Was, was, was it eight hundred seats? Six hundred sixty-six. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> nice, 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 nice number. Yeah. 
And I, yeah, we sort of worked our way through the crowd and joined the queue. And I thought, oh, I wonder what else is on tonight. And then somebody said it's a single screen theatre. I thought, <laughs> oh shit. And uh, yeah, yeah. And then I was. It was the big thing was for me was that there was um, everybody was still there at the end. That was the sort of the yeah. thing that at the time was really special that nobody left because I'd been told oh people walk out all the time and people go and see other things and people book for stuff they haven't done any research about and then they realise five minutes in that they don't want to watch it but yeah I was sat right at the back on the balcony as well and you know there was certain moments in the film key moments that I won't spoil but when there was that palpable gas moment so it was just it was working right to the back of such a big cinema which is amazing yeah and I'd never been in a cinema like that before no you know a few weeks before we did we'd done the cast and crew screening in Newlin in a cinema <laughs> seat 76 <laughs> yeah. that was pretty intimidating so yeah. to be in that size cinema was, yeah. was pretty overwhelming really yeah, yeah brilliant um, we'll come back to to bait a, a little bit later on but I wanted to go even further back to, to 2002 and we're going to play a few clips of various things and the first clip we're going to play but you can set it up for us is Golden Burn which is your first feature I, I hate it's difficult to sort of say that now because depends who you talk to that's what I'm saying you know it's like in every sort of BFI or newspapers it's like Mark Jenkins di directorial debut it's not bollocks it isn't you know but yeah and then I get whenever that happens then I get loads of people get who work with me on my other films getting in contact so <laughs> you've, re you've written us out of your history yeah, yeah. but it's not you know it's the, the definition of the first film is really difficult and I'm quite uncomfortable with it at times so we, I was in Istanbul in um April, and we were up for the Golden Tulip, the main competition prize, which is only, I think you have to be a debut director to win the prize. And I was sat there in the awards ceremony thinking, I really hope we don't win this. Yeah. Which is a really <laughs> unique feeling. Yeah. Because normally I think, oh, I really want to win it, and then pretend afterwards that it didn't matter. No, but on this one, I was genuinely thinking, <laughs> yeah, I really yeah. hope we don't win this, because it might be great to go up there and pick it up, yeah. but it's going to be horrible to have to hand it back. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> crazy. And they find out that I've done other films. Yeah, so so you submitted Golden Burn to, to Filmstock in, in 2002, and that's how you, you met Neil, is that right? Yeah, well, I didn't actually come here. Okay. It's the first time I've been to Luton. Right. Uh, but I did submit the film. Yeah, we, I shot it in 1999, um, and then I finished it in 2002. I was working for a company in a post-production house in London, and as soon as I got to London, having I, I was at Bournemouth for three years, and then I, I stayed in Bournemouth for a little while longer, working as a builder for a while, and then I ended up moving to London. I worked at a post-production house, and once I was in London, I realised how much I wanted to live back in Cornwall, and part of my uh, therapy for dealing with not being able to be in Cornwall was to write a film about growing up in Cornwall. I took two weeks holiday, just after the eclipse, which was um, I think August the 11th, 1999, so the second two weeks of August, went back to Cornwall and shot this film, and then spent two years editing it once I got back to London. And um, I used to, in the post-production house, I used to sneak off from where, what I was supposed to be doing and go into an edit suite and, and work on the film. Right. And then I, I got sacked, because I wasn't ever doing what I was supposed to do. But the edit suite was... Um, uh, it's just been recorded, isn't it? The, um, <laughs> just tell me where the cut point used to be. <laughs> yeah, it would, but the edit suite was in a different building, which you just had to know the key code. So right. after I'd been fired, I used to still go back in the nights and at the weekend and yeah. edit. And it was where the tape library was for the post-production house and the film library. So quite often somebody would come down to pick up a film, 
and I used to have to lie behind this low wall between <laughs> the edit suite and this little kitchen area. Um, but I managed to, yeah, I finished the film in end of two, summer of 2001, and sure. then Filmstock was just one of the festivals that I right. submitted to, and um, and it's a feature, isn't it? So, did, had you made short? Um, you made obviously shorts up to that point, but was this? No, I just went straight. Went straight feature. straight yeah. to feature. Okay, so yeah. was the. I was asked to talk to a festival the other day about short about development from shorts to features. Right. And I, said, I can't do <laughs> I that. Can't do that. I started with this. It, I think it's six seventy minutes or sixty eight minutes right. or whatever people decide. Define is a feature. Is a feature. You've got over sixty, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. In terms of the development of your filmmaking, then do you still do you look back at this film as a sort of blueprint for your development at all, or is it get, you know does it encapsulate the things that you're still interested in? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think I sort of think of this film as my as the film that set me up as somebody who was self sufficient and somebody who if 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 I'm told that I can't do something, that then that will mean that I will definitely then do it, which was. The, Situation with this film, where people said make a short, and I just thought, if you're gonna make a short, yeah. you know, and this is personally, if I was gonna make a short, I might as well make a feature film. And I think shorts are much harder to make than feature films, so okay. I thought it'd be much easier to tell yeah. this story in a long-winded way rather than a concise way. And and I I think maybe in terms of the themes and the type of storytelling, this is a million miles away from what I do now, yeah. but. I wrote bait while I was editing this in 2001. So I, in fact, by the you know we, we shot draft 42 of bait, and it had been written. I spent 20 years writing it, so it was written at the same time as this. And in fact, our mutual friend Denzel, yeah, who um, was associate producer on bait, when he first saw the edit, his first comment was, "Well, this is the sequel to Golden Burn." Right. So they're quite closely linked. That doesn't mean this is not going to be excruciating for me to watch. <laughs> to watch now especially for the, next the six minutes. Especially the prologue, okay. which is pretty um, on the nose. Okay. Well, should we, we'll, we'll play the first, I think we've got the first six minutes of the film, so feel free to kind of oh, hide. Or something. So can we play the, the clip of Golden Burn and then we'll talk a bit more about it? <laughs> <laughs> What's your Cornwall? Weekend getaway? Summer retreat? Sailing in Fowey? King Arthur at Tintagel? Traffic jams on the ever-widening A30? Fishing trips from Padstow? Roughing it in a tent? Surfing at Fistral? Cornish pasty and chips? Clotted cream? Pixies? Or is it your home? Not your second home. Your only home. Every June an invasion begins. The coastal population of Cornwall swells. Thanks to the caravan park and the hotel, the population of Porth Hale grows by over 200% during the summer. Loads of the Cornish coast is pretty much a holiday park now. Loads of visitors and part-timers. 
When you've lived there all your life, it's easy to forget that it was ever any different, and for the tourists and part-timers, it must be impossible for them to know. Some of those visitors stay for a couple of days. Some stay for a couple of weeks. Some of them stay and just become locals. You, did I? Don't worry, mate. I'm used to it. Let's have the ball, Henry. Shut up. You, um, you're living at Rose's Cottage, aren't you? Yeah, I've just moved in there. Does he want to play? What's your name? Chris. Chris. My name's Henry. Hi. Does he want to play? Jim Chapman. Went to school with him. Good longboarder. Great photographer. Do you want to play? Yeah, cool. Right, yeah. You'll have to play in goal, right? Yeah, you'll have to play in goal. Uh, all right then. Jim's best mate, Doshi, great shortboarder, famous in the village because of his eccentric dad. Yeah, uh, just moved into uh, Rose's cottage. Famous glasses, mate. Uh, cheers. Now you'll find us a pretty agreeable bunch, OK? But don't pay too many minds to the chairman, eh? Right. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for attending. Um, this meeting's been called by the Parish Council uh, at the request of various members of the community who are concerned about the forthcoming season. Uh, you all have a, a, a copy of the agenda. Um, as you'll see, there are six items. Uh, just a point of order, we, we, we are going to shift item four up to item two. So the item on road signs now is item two, and item two becomes item three, grass cutting. Nick Chapman, Jim's old man, fisherman and chairman of the parish council. Item one, the beach. Once again, the beach dominates the proceedings, uh, the beach and the fears that people have for it. Mr. Barrett. Mr. Chairman, as I said at the last meeting, something has got to be done about the amount of litter on the eye tide line. It's just as bad as it was last year. Yeah, we've written to the District Council several times we last week. We should close the beach at night. I was just, I'm in the film as well, I was just terrified that it was going to play long enough for. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, we managed to exercise that, but um, how? I mean, clearly the, the the sort of questions of the politics and the economics of what's going on in Cornwall is there already. I mean, is that something that you were kind of thinking about, like at school and, and discussing with with friends and, and and you know how how did that sort of become ingrained in your your thoughts? Yeah, the idea of Cornwall being a holiday park was was a sort of preoccupation. Um, and actually in the narration, in my narration, I said a lot of Cornwall's pretty much a holiday park. And Bait was called the holiday park until not long before we shot it. It was still called the holiday park. Yeah. So I think it was something that was, um, yeah. I think what happened was I moved away from Cornwall. I spent so much of my youth wanting to get away to find out where the party really was. Yeah. And then... I didn't really think that much about being Cornish or Cornwall until I left. And then as soon as I went over the border, I became the most Cornish person anybody had ever met. 
and wanted to sort of move move back. Um, yeah. And then at the time, it was it was just very difficult to imagine ever moving back to Cornwall and ever being able to do certainly what I do now. But any kind of sort of profession was was very limited because yeah. it was the start of brand Cornwall. Right. This thing where you could monetize. Um, culture, tradition, uh, the environment. It was the kind of the beginning of all of that. Was certainly the, the start of my awareness of it. It wasn't the beginning of it, of course, because yeah. Nick Dark, who's my great mentor, who's in the film playing the, the head of the, the chair of the parish council there, you know, he, he said that his dad said to him in 1981 that he said, Cornwall's fucked. Yeah. So I think everybody, every generation sort of recognises this over-reliance on selling the place over and over again. Yeah. And was it a combination as well of sort of working in London? I don't know if you were doing sort of commercial projects or ads or whatever it was, but then sort of thinking there is nowhere for me to to kind of express myself and make films in the way that I want here. Yeah, I always, I'm never one to wait to be given the permission to do something. So um, I thought I worked in the film industry when I was in London. I was cutting film trailers effectively. Um, and one day I just woke up um, and thought, oh, I work in marketing. I don't work in the <laughs> film industry. Yeah. And it was like later that day that I decided to move back to Cornwall. And there's nothing against marketing, mm. but I didn't... You didn't I, want to do it. No. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, well, how, what? Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cutting um, film trailers for that really bad Jean-Claude Van Damme films for Channel 5. Oh, that I'm was not, you. I'm not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not working in the film industry. So, but I think by, you know, but by then I'd already, Goldenburn was finished. It played at the Celtic Film Festival, which is a Cornish person is a, is a big deal because it's a film festival where you're recognised as Cornish yeah. rather than being English, which is really important. Um, and it won the first time director prize. So I was a first time director in 2002, as well as now. Mm. Um, and that... And that, that, that got me noticed in Cornwall, which for me was the only thing that mattered. And right. at the time, there was a huge amount of European money going into Cornwall. Um, just to thank you, that's going to stop. Um, <laughs> well, the Tories will make it up, don't worry. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the success of Golden Burn sort of on the, on the pan-Celtic stage, which is very important for me, yeah. got me the attention needed for to be able to be given a grant to work in Cornwall on a new film. And I moved back in 2002, got some money, got a grant, mm. and started writing a script. And that was, that's bad. And, and just before I move off Golden Burn, did you, when you were in London, did you sort of think that there is the infrastructure and like the friendship group and maybe the sort of production possibilities in Cornwall to do this, or is it just literally because I don't care what you know? I will work it out when I get there. Kind of no, there was nothing. Right. I mean, from my point of view, there was nothing. When I got back, I realised there was a real ground, uh, a grassroots filmmaking community, which I will be forever indebted to. Is what the Cornwall Film Festival was born out of. Um, it was a group called um, CMR, the Cornwall Media Resource, but they weren't visible outside of Cornwall. So I wasn't in London thinking I need to get back to Cornwall because all of this opportunities down there you know the university wasn't there yeah. there was there was nothing really there and, it, and actually my friendship group wasn't there because everybody had done the same as me they'd moved away yeah. so my the my sort of group of friends and my family you know my new family and all of that kind of stuff all comes out of moving back to this burgeoning industry um, and meeting everybody afresh in 
in 2002. Yeah. And you mentioned there Nick Dark, who you obviously sort of mention a lot and is a, a mentor to you. And you know, I've written some things down about, you know, the correlation between you and him and what he may have done for you, not just, you know, in terms of the sort of instrumental career, but, you know, just as an inspiration and that, that kind of thing. I mean, again, without being you know, facetious. I don't, maybe not everybody in the audience knows who Nick Dark is, but maybe you sort of explain, you know, the, the kind of impact he had on your... Yeah, well, Nick's... Um, Nick, Nick was a playwright who was... I mean, he was much more than just the kind of voice of Cornwall, but for me, he was that voice of Cornwall. He was, um, you know, he, he was at the um, Royal Court and, you know, much... Bit, much bigger than a Cornish playwright, but he, for me, he's he is that sort of voice of Cornwall, and he made sense of what it meant to be Cornish at a time when being proud of being Cornish was quite a complicated thing. Because what were you proud of, mm. you know? Um, and he made sense of what it meant to be Cornish, but and to be proud of where you come from, and proud of tradition and the culture, but also to be outward looking and inclusive, and just you know, his he just had the the most incredible mind, and you know, if you read his work, his his plays, it's it's all in there, you know, just this incredible writer. But uh, and so I I met him through um, my best friend at school, Jim, um, and. Um, and, and another guy, Henry, his two sons, and so they're both in this film. Mm. Um, and so I sort of knew, I got to know Nick as my mate's dad, really. And then when, as I got into writing and felt that I had something to say through film, I realised this, my mate's dad was this, you know, yeah. I had access to this guy and we, you know, we became very close. And through this film, um, most of it shot at his house, him and his wife, Jane, um, their house where Jane still lives and it's this amazing house near the beach um, that the generations of his family lived in and we were able to use it for several different locations and at the same time as we were doing this Nick had a commission to write a, a, a three-part drama series for BBC and I persuaded Nick to be in the film you know as you've seen and um, he just loved so he just loved having these young people around making a film and actually he got in touch with his agent and said, I found the director for my BBC series. Right. And of course I was that twenty three year old who done wow. nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the you know, so I think <laughs> the response was yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> but you know, that the belief that he gave me this, you know, that I would read everything of his that I read, I was, this is just yeah. incredible. And he wants, you know, he wants to work with me. So yeah. the momentum that that gave me, I, I still live off that now. Yeah. And he was somebody as well, very concerned with the past, but also not in a sort of maudlin, overly sentimental way, just how does that shape the present and, and the future, and that obviously sort of is key in your work. I yeah, I think that I talk quite a lot about because I have to, you know, I have to justify the way I work to people quite a lot because you know, as as I've been called many times on on Twitter, you know, when people say something about the way I made the film, often the response is, "Oh, he sounds like a hipster cunt." Get <laughs> yeah, yeah, used to being called that quite a lot. Yeah. Um, so I have to justify the way I work. And that it isn't gesture and it isn't fashion. Yeah. It's um, it's something that I'm interested in a way of working that has been left behind through progress. And that's kind of what the theme of my work is about. You know, progress is inevitable and it's important and it's essential. And without progression, you know, 
as a as a species or whatever we die out that doesn't mean we shouldn't look at what we lose as we progress and who decides how we progress and Nick was very interested in that yeah and on a very local level the rebranding of Cornwall what do we lose in the in the in the quest for ever more yeah. visitors you know and he was very careful the way he talked about it. and I cringed then because I said you know talk about Cornwall and said you know every year an invasion begins and you know using the word invasion yeah. in the oh wow you know mm. but it's also that, that somebody bit. decides but, these things it's not that it just happens for no reason you know? yeah. no yeah and the, and the idea that it's somehow natural mm. you know but it's not it's just a small group of people making a hell of a lot of money and yeah. disempowering a lot of other people whose alienation and frustration then manifests itself in very dangerous ways and that's yeah. where we're living today yeah in in terms of the sort of next few projects i mean the midnight drives is one you know obviously that, that again was sort of successful and i'm wondering you know you're working with a group of people now and then you you cast colin holt who got a lot of plaudits for that that role is it important for you that they're that they're Cornish, <laughs> you know, how important is that, that they understand the sensibility, but how much is it about, you know, finding, finding people that you trust and, you know, like we were talking a bit outside that you can sort of, you know, meet and discuss with and they're on the same wavelength kind of thing. Yeah, um, the Cornishness thing is important um, in terms of the, the sensibility, but that's got nothing to do with, you know, that you kind of have to address what, what I would mean by Cornishness, mm. and it's not, you know, I'm not, I've got the same beliefs as Norman Tebbit <laughs> in terms of what, you know, what belonging to a country means. You know, some of the most Cornish people I know aren't technically Cornish, however you want to define that. But yeah, they've got to share the, my sensibility, or, but sometimes be totally at odds with it, you know, because that's, that's how the creative process works. Sometimes you need those people who. Who, who don't share your sort of ideas about something but are, but are fully engaged in the way that a thing is being done and that's all my work is is done in that way somebody like Colin you know me in in some ways um, I think pretty much everything I've done Colin's been involved in one way or another whether it's in front of the camera or behind the camera but that's not to say we agree with everything yeah. with each other all the time we have we you know we have big disagreements about how things sure. should be done and what we should do and stuff like that but it's a really healthy relationship yeah. in that sense most of the time you know like <laughs> can be destructive like like you know like all close working relationships but I've got a very strong um, tight-knit group of, yeah. of collaborators yeah because Corn Cornish film is a thing isn't it you know what I mean and, and for, for, for better or worse sometimes and it's sort of being part of that is an interesting dynamic you know having worked there and being from the outside yeah, I mean, I don't know what it is really. <laughs> I I can only talk about my yeah. You know, my my work. I don't you know whether there's a movement or an industry or yeah. you could you could say yes, but you could also argue there isn't. You know. And were, were you involved with the university about around this time? When 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 did that sort of relationship? Um, what with the midnight drives? Yeah, or, was it a rep sort Yeah, two thousand seven. Yeah, so yeah. I think I went in. We we had a rough cut of the film. In two thousand and seven, and went into the university to this is Falmouth University. Yeah, Falmouth yeah. University to, um, and it was just it was when the, the course was becoming more of a practical course, or it was have, introducing a practical element to what yeah. was a what was a, a, a theory course. And I was me and Simon Harvey, who's the producer, were invited in to to screen a rough cut in probably yeah two thousand and seven, mm. and neither of us really left. <laughs> yeah, now how do you find sort of the you know the, the the teaching 
creative practice element of your career because I think it's it, it, you know it's part of part of it I think knowing you knowing you well and working with students and, and that kind of thing how do you find that I, I, I'd love I'd love working at the university in terms of the in terms of the teaching and the engagement especially with theory you know when I, I did a similar degree that that they teach at Falmouth and um, yeah, I never engaged with any of the theory mm. you know, I've got Baldwell Thompson's film art right which has never been opened. Yeah. You know, three years, <laughs> it clearly has never been opened. Right. And then as soon as I started teaching, um, even though I was teaching on the practice side of it, suddenly all this theory opened up to me because I was meeting people like yourself. And I was thinking, God, this is like, you know, this is a, a whole department where people just talk about film. Yeah. And people just think about film, which can be quite unhealthy as well, but it's really inspiring and, and got me to engage much more with film history and, um, you know, and, and theory and the academic side of it, which has been amazing. I had two years out of the university quite recently um, where I was sort of on a retainer for another project. So I wasn't at the university. And I, a bit of my brain definitely went to sleep right. in terms of engaging with the academic side of it. Yeah. And, the, and the Bordwell and Thompson book, I, you know, I read that in the bath for fun. Yeah. Now. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it just shows that education is wasted on the young. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I couldn't possibly comment. Um, so we're going to show a full short of yours now uh, called Vertical Shapes in a Horizontal Landscape. And I remember this fondly because we met up in Hastings. I think we were at, were, were we at Andrew Cotting's screening or was it you screening with him? I can't. We were screening together. Yeah. What had happened was that, um, Theresa May called the snap election. Yeah. And, um, and on the Thursday, me and you were chatting on Twitter, I think. And... Um, you were quite. You know the drink or two. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember. Yeah, you were going to go down to the recount of Amber Rudd's. And the yeah, yeah. And, I, and I said, and you were yeah, encouraging me I'll, to do it. I'll yeah. try and spot you on the TV because it was like four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they had the third recount because it was three hundred yeah. votes, and it was difference. so exciting because it was like because the exit poll had come out and it thought, oh god, there's some hope, and then all of this, and it just felt like everything was falling down around us, and. I'd, I'd said to myself, I'm not going to stay up because the next day I had to travel to Hastings, which from Cornwall is a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Because you have to go to London and, and then, then down. Yeah. So I thought, I don't want to be up all night. But anyway, me and you ended up sort of staying yeah. up most of the night chatting about what was going to happen. Went up to Hastings and then on the Friday night, we did we the We were screening. at the Electric Palace. Yeah, which was, it, it was an exciting time mm. because it was, you know... <laughs> I'm talking from my own political beliefs, I'm not assuming everybody agrees with me here, but it was quite an exciting time because there was no government, was there? Yeah. And then the DUP turned up. Yeah. But it was, um, it was quite exciting for a yeah. time because it felt like there was a little bit of hope. And, yeah. it was, and we did the screening with Andrew on Friday and I went, to his, I went around to his on Saturday morning and had breakfast at his place. And then um, I walked 26 miles from his house to Dungeness. And the idea was that I was going to walk from... Andrew's house, who's a great hero of mine, I've been lucky enough to get quite good friends with, um, from his house to Derek Jarman's grave in Romney Marsh. And that was the idea of these vertical shapes in the horizontal landscape. So the horizontal landscape being the, the dull world of film mm. and these sort of vertical colossus in my mind of, of, of art. Yeah. You know? I say that now, I actually had the title before I thought of the film right. and made a film that was based around the title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, sort of like, so. But it was a kind of delirious moment you were saying because, you know, with all the political stuff you talked about and then you did, but you had the idea of you were going to, you know, because it's on 16 
uh, mill, is that right? Yeah, or super eight. eight. Super eight, sorry, yeah. big pan. And, and you're going to shoot a certain portion of the time there and then back again. Yeah, so the plan was a- Andrew gave me directions. The film starts very quickly and there's a bit of narration at the beginning that I, people have always told me they, they miss, but so I'll tell you what it is now for you here. But Andrew basically said, gave me directions to where Derek's grave was because I've been to Derek Jarman's house in Dungeness loads of times and photographed it and all that kind of stuff. I'd never been to his grave, which is in a churchyard of Romney Marsh. So I worked out on the map that it was 26 miles. Um, I had two rolls of Super 8 film. I'd shoot the first roll between Hastings and Rye. Yeah. And when I got to Rye, I changed the roll and then I would shoot the second roll between Rye and the uh, grave. Um, it was 26 mile walk. I, I spent the whole day on my own. I went a little bit insane. I forgot where I was going and ended up at his house and forgot to walk to, to the, the grave. To the yeah. grave, which is kind of spoiler. That's the, <laughs> but but um, yeah, but it was that. It, that was the sort of the feeling of it was um, was that everything was a little bit uncertain. And it was beautiful. You know, it was June. Yeah. It was so hot. It was that bit of England. That coast is so yeah, weird and yeah. alien and. But, and I meant to, you know, I was going to have breakfast at Andrews, nine o'clock in the morning and then go. And then we ended up talking for about three hours. And then I walked from St. Leonard's to Hastings. And it was midday when I got to Hastings. And then I found out, this is in the film, so it's no point watching the film, yeah. that the, the cliff path had fallen down. So then I couldn't even walk the first bit. And I had to wait for a bus. And it was just, but it did, nothing mattered. Because yeah. it was like, for the first time in forever, things weren't totally depressing. <laughs> Okay, let's let's uh, let's play the film. I stopped at the co-op and ate an apple outside whilst looking at the wooden church of St Richard. I lay in the field beside a drainage ditch, summoning up the energy to continue on to Rye, where at a junction I realised I had been before and saw evidence of like-minded people. imposed a structure on ourselves. We've gone running towards painless, wiped clean consensus with our arms out wide. The decision has been made and the committee who meet in public have inevitably settled on vanilla. a bit simplistic to to categorize you as either like a, a fictional or a documentary filmmaker you know it's it, it, you know it can't be put in those terms but how do you it seems to me that you a film like this you're using film not just to orientate yourself to the the world and the landscape but almost as a filmmaker you know you, it's like you have to make this film to sort of get a sense of what's what's going on is that is that right probably <laughs> okay yeah I don't, um, I'm not sure I think I mean, it's like, I feel like just asking the question, why did you make that? It, it's, there's not an easy answer, <laughs> is there? Why did you make that? <laughs> um, I just like to be making stuff. Yeah. That's, that's the main thing, you know, and I, I think it's, it's probably best not to analyse it too much okay. because the idea that anybody has got any interest in listening to what I'd want to say might stop me from 
from doing it. I mean, these these diary films were, were born out of my um, frustration with being in development with other film projects and wanting to to be making work and and thinking, well, I can just make films that are just for me. Um, and if I'm going to do that, I want to shoot on Super 8 because I just love shooting on Super 8. So what I started with is it's got a, a discipline to it that I really love. Um, so I, I made a film in 2015, I think, uh, called Dear Marianne, which was kind of the same structure as this. And I never intended to show anybody. And, so, and, a, and a, a producer friend of mine, who was actually here yesterday, um, saw a clip of it online I just put, put a tiny snippet of it up and she wanted to see the rest of it she saw it she said this is great you should share it so I did and then there you know this is that film's by far the most successful film I've ever made it's played everywhere you know it's played at all the big short film festivals you know and they were sorry at LFF when you were Q&A yeah and I mean it was at you know Oberhausen and mm. it's played in America it's played and it's um and I just made it for me. Yeah, but it yeah. is in that experimental travelogue tradition as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, you know, maybe not intentionally, but you know. It, yeah, I, I mean, I always think at the end where it says, you know, I sit down amongst the Valerian sea kale and think of kind Nick back in Hastings and hope that Terry will be back to his old self. It's like, <laughs> that doesn't mean anything to anybody. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that's yeah. a that's a character, that's a bloke I've not mentioned in the rest of the film, and Terry yeah. is his dog. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but. And in years to come, maybe even I'll watch it and think, who's yeah. Nick and Terry? But there's, some, there's something within it, I think, that yeah. the mood of it, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, Bresson's theory that it's more important to feel a film than understand it. And I think by just making stuff yourself, it becomes so specific that it's, it's got, you know, I, I feel that film, you know, I, I remember that day, I remember the emotions. And I still feel that when I watch it, and I think they might maybe the the reason it it plays so well is just because people recognise that they don't have to understand what it is. It's just, it just captures something, that, mm. you know. And, or and maybe, you know, maybe, no. before before you just sort of leading on from that, you're talking about maybe, and I've read this, you know, that sort of disillusionment with the sort of digital and and this kind of stuff, and then you know before you made ba you made Bronco's House, so and that was the first. Am I right in saying that's the first sort of major film that you shot with the Bolex and using the process that now is talked about around bait. You know? Yeah, first narrative yeah. film. Yeah, I mean, I was just bored stiff by what I was doing. You know, not necessarily by other people's stuff, but I had no energy for the, the process because I didn't understand the process. The cameras that I was, was using, you know, you'd start, you'd start a shoot on it with this cutting edge camera. By the end of the shoot, it was out of date and I just couldn't keep up with that idea of technology. Yeah. And I would talk to students and, you know, and I, and I was doing like practical workshops with students and I'd get up and try and talk about a new camera. And, and I'd just open my mouth and think, oh God, I just like, you know, what's granddad got to say? Because, like, <laughs> these people know far more than me. And I thought, I just need to disengage with the technological side of it. Because that was what was leaving me cold. I was shooting stuff on a DSLR, and I thought, "This is this is the future." Yeah. You know, I've got this camera; I can operate it. And but still, this little bastard was making creative decisions for me. This little computer that had been programmed by yeah. somebody else, and I just thought, and I was, yeah, tell how yeah. bitter I was. But you know, and I made a film like that, and I loved the film, but I didn't really like the process. I didn't like it. Didn't feel like filmmaking to me. And I know I sound like a you know an old. Sure. Um, you know, being nostalgic or whatever, but then 
as I've said many times in interviews, I got ill, not related to shooting on a digital camera, <laughs> something else. And then I had to have an operation, and then I was laid up on the sofa for weeks, and I watched Mark Cousins' The Story of Film, 15-hour documentary, I watched that twice, and I thought, I want to capture the passion that that man's got for filmmaking. And so I went back to what I'd loved doing, which was shooting on Super 8, the alchemy of an image, arriving and all that kind of stuff it was, and it was never an aesthetic thing you know right, okay. so it's not the connection between the materiality of, of doing it on film and processing or all that stuff you do yourself and then somehow that materiality is burned into the image somehow. It's, it's just more about you, you I don't understand it okay. I don't understand why I love it so much I'm quite glad, you know I quite often try and rationalise it but I just love it and that's why that's why I love it so much is because I don't know why mm. you know I just look film's just weird isn't it mm. you know you, shoot, you capture light and it creates images and then you record sound and then you mess around with time and suddenly you're re recreating a sense of the unconscious or the conscious that you can't articulate in words you know and a lot of that is to do with the decisions you're forced into make you know you're forced into making through limitation mm. which i think i'd lost shooting digitally that i just thought yeah. oh, this is brilliant i could just hoover up everything that's going on and actually by doing that i missed the essence of what was so special about yeah. about film and what had originally inspired me to want to go out and mm. capture images so and also i like the, i do like the physical work of it you know i like to still think of myself as a working person so yeah. i can't i don't want to be sat at a yeah. desk like tapping one finger on a mouse button I don't want to be you know I, I like the time bait the time pressure of it and all of that kind of stuff so, sure yeah. and that, that then brings us to bait was there a, a sense you think that again maybe it's not even a, a deliberate or a, a, a thing that you kind of thought of consciously but with the this process that you got back to and then after you know that fleeting moment where anything was possible you know when there was no government <laughs> there was maybe a sort of shift, you know, for the rest of us, for for the UK and around the world. If you think of other areas and Trump and all this kind of stuff, where where there's anger underpinning people's thoughts, and I just wondered whether that somehow triggered you redeveloping or bringing this project back, because it was a project that that had a long gestation period. Is that right? Yeah. Well, we were ready to shoot in September two thousand and sixteen, so. The, the sort of, the film predates any of that mm. stuff that happened in 2016 happening but it was born out of how I felt for 20 years before that which is which is the you know which was the, the situation we were in then was the thing that led to 2016 the idea that everybody got angry or or, or vocal in 2016, it's kind of nonsense, you know. 2016 was a result of ordinary people being fucked over for a generation, and that was just the point where it just came out. So it's funny that the film, you know, in Berlin, we talked about the, the premiere, where I was sat there with Mary, and she was sort of like holding my hand and we, as the film was playing, and then suddenly the radio report in the film that happens during one of the early scenes in the Holidaymakers kitchen which is all about Brexit because it was in Germany suddenly that was subtitled yeah so I like clenched Mary's hand and, and went, oh shit you know 
This is this is amazing to me as well because it, it looks changed like the film. film. Yeah, 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 yeah. It does change the film because that was the second time I'd saw, seen it. Yeah. Without those subtitles. And then I thought, oh, maybe it's just me that's thinking that. And then I got up and did the Q and A, and the first question was about Brexit. Yeah. And then thought, oh my god, and you know, and for four or five days, I was Britain's unofficial spokesperson for Brexit at the Berlin Eye. Good luck with that. Yeah. yeah. And so we got it, and it got, and it's been really handy, you know, publicity-wise. It's great yeah. because people said, "Ask the first Brexit film." So then everybody's got a, an opinion on Brexit, so people can key into the the film in that way. It's been commercially, it's been fantastic. Yeah. But it's not, it's not about Brexit. It's about actually what happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What happened to cause Brexit? What happened? internationally to cause Trump what you know where does populism come from you know what is the alienation that breeds the move towards populism so um, yeah I think it, it comes from being in somewhere like Cornwall where it's the type of place that gets hit first mm. if there's an economic crisis it's the place that recovers last I mean I, just, I expect it's as similar in you know in a town like Luton you know then it, it's outside of you know I hate the word the bubble but it's outside of where the focus is um, and so the idea that the Brexit result is some kind of surprise yeah, yeah. is laughable when you're living in somewhere that has been forgotten yeah. and people are given the chance to reject something yeah and we'll, we'll play the trailer in a in a second but one thing that maybe gets overlooked a little bit is the casting. And did you have Edward in mind for the lead? I mean, obviously, he's a very specific Cornish persona again, if I can use that, that phrase. Um, he actually auditioned 10 years ago for the, the part of the younger guy. Right, OK. Um, and we always laugh about it because I can't remember him auditioning. But he can. But my memories of the audition process are based on we did an open casting thing, which is something that you know I, I don't do anymore. I kind of I don't like that process. But um, one of the tapes disappeared, and I think he must be on the tape that disappeared. So. <laughs> but but I I met him. He worked with Mary um, on a on a on a big site specific theatre piece, um, and I just thought he was great as a performer. And he's a big bloke. Yeah. Um, physically, he's you know fantastic for that kind of character. And he's just by trade, as well as a trained theatre actor. He's a stand-up comic. You know, he's got this alter ego, Kerno King. Um, and I like the idea of working with funny people, and then not giving them the chance to really rely on that. You know, and looking at the kind of tragedy that might be behind that humour yeah and um, yeah once once we decided there was no looking back really he was yeah. you know and now I can't imagine anybody else playing that no no I mean it's, it was it was amazing sort of when we were in we are in the Curzon in Bloomsbury and there's Edward Rowe from Cornwall and Brad Pitt next to each other on the <laughs> posters which was, was fantastic I thought yeah, yeah. Um, and then I think just as important though is Sam Shepard and Mary Woodvine and th they're really important in terms of the the roles that they're playing that have to have a character behind them, but they're also, you know, embodying the things that you're criticising. And particularly, I love that, what you talk about, Simon, sort of being the, the David Cameron char character. Yeah, <laughs> that was my direction. He asked me for some um, direction at some point, which I tend not to give too much direction once the casting's done. And he, there was a particular scene, he said, how do I play it? And I said, just play it like David Cameron. Just be charismatic and charming and the life and soul of the party. 
until somebody tells you that you're not allowed to do the thing that mummy always told you you could do, yeah. and then you just throw your toys out of the pram. But he would, you know, he, he, Mary and Simon are the two most experienced actors in the film. You know, they're both experienced TV actors. Mary's done uh, a lot of film as well. So um, it was kind of, yeah, something quite interesting in bringing in experienced actors to play those roles where a lot of the other, the more local characters were, were maybe less experienced in terms of the, the dynamic there. But it's funny because Mary, you know, she's, she's a working actor. She's, you know, she's, um, she's great. She's successful. Um, and then the day after the rap party, she goes back to her day job, which yeah, is yeah, yeah. cleaning holiday cottages. Yeah. You know, so it's art and life, all that kind of stuff, you know, all sort of overlaps. And there's a, which I think is, you know, that, ca that character has to be empathetic. Mm. You know, she has to recognize. She can't be an evil person. It's, no, yeah. no, hopefully there's no evil people in it. It's just, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. just different levels of ignorance. Yeah. Relating to a specific situation, and um, yeah, she. I think she she does she, she does have an element of redemption. I think it's slightly misjudged what she does, but it comes from a good place. Right. Can we play the uh, the trailer for Ben? Yes. Evening, Mrs. Peters. Evening, Martin. Lovely day. All inside us bound in jail. Got no money for their pay. You keep your Yo, what's on? Nothing much. Get him, Manny? Not enough. Why don't you just go back working with Stephen for a bit? I got bloody principles. I'm going to have to ask you again not to leave your truck outside. What are you doing, Martin? It's between me and the clamping company. You didn't have to sell us this house, didn't we? I honestly thought he was speaking German. <laughs> Losing your temper isn't going to help. I haven't lost my temper yet. Your old man wouldn't have shut the pub in the winter. Bloody disgrace you are. Sell it! Get out! carry on until we get kicked out um, basically so I'm going to come out to the audience to give you a chance to ask Mark any questions but a couple of, just a couple of things to finish off for me um, the aesthetic to all your films I mean obviously this is, has its particular kind of aesthetic but then your your interest in the representation of Cornwall and Cornish identity you know and that critique you have I think of the sort of either the you know the, the pole dark romanticization or you know, the, the sort of Cornish stereotype of that we need a, a regional idiot to kind of function in a narrative. You know, I've heard you sort of criticise that. So, you know, how, how do you sort of think about your approach to representing this this place that's so, so sort of important and fundamental to who you are? Um, 
Yeah, it, uh, I see it as a, a sort of redressing the balance, really, of how Cornwall has been used as a backdrop, really. And the thing that I think you're referring to is what I say about, you know, normally Cornwall's used as a backdrop for other people's story, and it's normally somebody from London or, you know, a, an urban place who arrives in Cornwall thinking that they are a balanced person, but by, and a, and a happy person, but by interacting with the simple folk that live <laughs> in Cornwall, they realise something's missing from their life. And it's normally to do with, you know, some kind of earthiness. Yeah. And um, through that interaction, they learn something about what it really means to be a person. And then they go back to their old life, changed, for the better. Um, the Cornish people never change. They are just background. So you have a stupid one, um, a brassy one, um, a funny one, another stupid one, um, a clever one. Yeah, but at some, <laughs> some point in the story, you realise that that person isn't actually from Cornwall, they just lived there for a long oh, time. Right, and they gotcha. came from and it's just late, you know, it's just late, you know, if you want to write a stupid character, just give them a Cornish accent, simple, mm -hmm. if, you're a, if you're lazy, or you investigate what that, what that character actually is, and, um, but, that, but people tend not to do that, and, but what I wanted to do was to bring that background to the foreground and, and, and make more complex characters out of the Cornish people, the people that I know, who are all different, you know, I, was, you know, I told you a story mm -hmm. earlier on about a fisherman kind of accosting me in the street and telling me that he'd seen the film and then went on to sort of talk to me about the f at first I was thinking oh no you know <laughs> is he unhappy with the way that the fishing industry has been portrayed but then he went on to display this knowledge of um, film and sort of referenced other stuff whilst talking about bait he's going you know every people are portrayed as being so simple in terms of um, who they are and where they're from, but actually everybody is a, comp a complex being and you don't see most of those people on screen. Most people are used as background for, for a certain type of person's story and, and, the, and, and film culture suffers as a result. I just wanted to say, you know, I think it's fair to say that, that throughout your films they're not, they are quite bleak. You know what I mean? To a, you know, it could be read that way. Let's say I've just wondered if you do ever get any pushback from people in Cornwall who whose sensibility might be why can't it be an, uh, a you know a lighter, more positive representation of Cornwall? Yeah, and the and the, the only um, negativity I've had towards the film is from some Cornish people who don't like the way the Cornish people are portrayed. Right. You know, and the, and the big fear going in, not necessarily from me, but. Um, well, a little bit from me was, you know, the the the, the portrayal of the the un, the you know, the incomers was going to be problematic. But a lot of it has been from people who want to recognise themselves on screen and are worried about how they're being portrayed, which I can completely understand. But then I, but I think the film's got a, it's not a feel good ending. No. But there's a note of positivity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, at the end of the film, there is, um, you know, the fishing continues. Mm. And there's a young generation on that fishing boat, and the young generation is female. Mm. You know, I think all of those things are. That was all very deliberate. You know, yeah. And that yeah. was um, that was the message at the end. That, yeah, and that there's hope in it. There's there's always hope in any situation. And it's interesting as well because the politics are kind of ambivalent. Because on the one hand, you could just sort of sort of maybe react and say, "Oh, well, you're just 
saying that all these people coming in are, you know, really kind of, you know, problematic. And I don't think, I mean, you've, I've heard you talk about entitlement a lot. Nigel Farage. Yeah, yeah, well, I've, yeah, true. But like, I, I've talk, heard you talk more about sort of, it's not the economics and the money coming in, people visiting, it's the, it's the entitlement. You know, and I've heard yeah. you sort of talk about that. Yeah, because people ask me, what the people who haven't seen the film ask me what, it, what the film's about. People who have seen the film tell me what it's about, <laughs> which is really helpful as well, because it does make me realise what, what it is about. But for me, you know, people say, what's it about? And sometimes I say, oh, it's about fishing. But it's not really about fishing, or it's about tourism, and it's not about tourism. For me, the film's about entitlement, and what a poison entitlement is, um, certainly within British society. I mean, I think we've seen that recently with a recent TV interview, you know, the sense of entitlement that some people have, and, and still we send our kids out into the street to wave flags at these people. Um, and I think that runs entirely through society from, from the top to the bottom, and it's so dangerous, and it's so ill-conceived, and it's so destructive, and it's so ugly. And, you know, from an example like that to another example, in, in Cornwall in the summer, um, near where near where we live, there's a tiny little beach that um, nobody really knew about, but a lot of people know about now. And people park all over the road so they go down to the beach, normally in huge black Land Rovers. Um, and then in the summer, there was a situation where there was nowhere to park, so people were parking in the bus stop. So the bus stop was full of these huge cars, and. Uh, the bus couldn't stop because it couldn't get off the road and into the bus stop. And that bus is filled with people who are cleaners going to clean the houses of these people, you know. And mm-hmm. this, I just looked at that one day and I thought, that's it. That's the, yep. you know, that's the Cornish postcard for me. Yeah. Is this lack, total lack of balance? This idea that if you paid a bit of money, you can do anything. Or even worse, if you've been born into a bit of money, you can do anything, and it's disgusting. So, does anybody have any questions for, for Mark? Nobody scared me. <laughs> At the back? Um, is there any... Uh, oh, nobody's coming. Can I, I'll, I'll pass this back because I do need you on the recording. Hi, uh, thank you very much for coming along, Mark. Um, I wanted to ask a question. It, it's quite prevalent that the music that you use um, in your finished films are very atmospheric and very kind of slightly ambivalent soundscapes. I was wondering, when you're in the writing process, do you use music that you know you're going to want to use, or do you use music that you just kind of have in the background and it filters in? The actual score of the film. Yeah, but also like when you're writing, do you play like music that you know that you can rely on just to be in the background to help you focus? Yeah, sometimes. Um, yeah, I tend to I tend to listen to music all the time to sort of determine my state of mind. So I I listen to. Um, um, I listen to a lot of ambient music. The 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 score for Bait I did myself, um, and I did that at the end of the editing process. Um, the latest short film I did, we had a composer, um, Kingsley Marshall, who created a palette of sounds beforehand that not only did I work on pre-production listening to, but we also played it on location while we were shooting because I don't record any location sound, so we can. I can play music while we're shooting as well. Um, the new film that we're shooting in May, I'm now doing the score at the moment, and the score, to a certain extent, will determine quite a lot of the visuals. And in fact, it's 
some of the film is set underground so we're getting to the stage now where the, the once the once bits of the score have been recorded we're actually going to now take them underground and play them in old mine shafts and re-record them and stuff so the score is something that happens really early on with bait there was never meant to be any score on it at all but it, i just um i bought an old analog synthesizer to play around with to distract me from the edit of the film because I was getting too consumed with the edit but because it was playing in the studio like you say it became background for the film and ended up going into the film. Any other questions? Hi Mark. Hello. Um, just awesome to see the trailer again. Um, my question is with the success of this film um, how are you going to manage to retain the same kind of DIY hands-on control that you've had in your films to date um, are you excited about branching out and having bigger budgets or do you want to stay in your very kind of control vision this is me, I'm in my film kind of thing um, yeah, smaller budgets would be better yeah. um, we lost a load of money just before we filmed Bait which, which was the best thing that happened creatively to the film because I had to do a very quick rewrite which meant that um, Originally in the script there were two boats and the, both of the brothers both had a boat and uh, with the rewrite, with the loss of the money, had to remove one of the boats from the film which meant that then the younger brother then was fishing off off the beach rather than, than with a boat which is this kind of the iconic heart of the visually of the film now which I never would have written unless we'd lost the money later on. So I don't want... Um, yeah, I don't want to do anything big budget, certainly not next. So l luckily, um, I've written something before Bait was finished that is ready to go. So we're going to shoot that in, in May. Uh, we're just financing it at the moment, which is proving to be a lot easier than financing Bait. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not taking quite as long, which is good. But, you know, we'll see. You're only, you're only kind of as good as... Um, as your last film and I know because of the critical and now ridiculously the box office success of Bait I know that I'm in a very privileged position but if the if the next one's crap then I'm going to be back to I'm going to be back to square one so the more I can control it the the better for the, for the, for the time being really uh, I'm sorry if you mentioned it in the first 10 minutes because I, I, I was late but what is that um, post-production process for the processing literally and or developing and processing that, that you did take us through um well for for bait it was uh so the whole film shot on a clockwork bolex camera so uh on 100 foot rolls of the film all shot silently and then i hand process everything frame by frame in a, in a small developing tank in my studio and for, for bait it took about three months working six days a week to process every frame and then it's scanned, uh, Kodak then do a digital scan for me to do the edit. Uh, and then I edit digitally and then revoice everything and then add all of the sound on. And then when that's finally finished, it's then printed back to 35mm or, or, or to a DCP, depending on where we're playing. And the scratches come from you in a bath, not you, <laughs> you've been looking through my window, um, yeah, it, it, the scratch, somebody said to me, you know, oh, it's amazing how you've spent all that time adding all of that 
grain and the scratches, and I always have to say, that's my best attempt <laughs> at processing film. And actually, it's, it's a really clean negative um, and a really um, pristine negative until it gets to the washing stage. And I've got no way of washing film without it scratching, because it's just done in a bucket underneath a tap in my studio. So there's 100 foot in the bucket, and it just turns slowly in the bucket. So the edge of the acetate scratches the emulsion and that that's just that's just the way it goes and you can kind of tell the more the more scratched it is the 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 more the more the tap must have been turned on when i was washing it and and there's bits you know there's the the bit where there's there's a shot that's in the trailer where there's some plastic bags being hung on door handles and it all sparkles and that's just one roll of film that did that in the whole in the whole lot that i processed and it was because the studio door was slightly open when it was drying and it's pollen that just came in and dried into the emulsion. So it's all it's all very haphazard. It's all I know what's likely to happen, but to what extent those things then happen is out of my control. But I, that's what I love about it. You're never quite sure what you're going to get. What was the ratio of the shooting to three, uh, three to one? So we we shot four and a half hours of footage for ninety minute film, and it was I just shoot one take and then one safety so it's not people always say that's two takes but it's actually one take and then i don't vary it i don't say right let's do something different it's a it's an exact replica of the original take uh just so that if there's a technical problem so and, and pretty you know pretty much everything gets put in there one way or another i tend not to i think there was one shot on the whole shoot that we did that didn't end up in the film we maybe have time for one more question okay hi um you're obviously a big advocate for using film, um, and with things like the lighthouse using film, do you feel there's been a bit of resurgence in film, getting that warmth, um, maybe imperfections in filmmaking? Do you feel that's sort of starting to come back more, becoming more prevalent? Yeah, I, I, I'm surprised at how many films seem to be shot on film now. While you know, while we're being told that it's all over for film, but then you have to question who it is who's telling people that. I mean, I travel with, I've been travelling with the film internationally since February and I've seen so many films that are shot on film, but that might be because I'm at sort of art house film festivals where people are more likely to shoot on film. But, but I, think, I think what's encouraging is people with no money shooting on film, people with very small budgets. Because I think what the danger was that if it's people like Chris Nolan and Quentin Tarantino and Steven Spielberg advocating for shooting on film, they're a certain type of director. And it, there's a danger that then that shooting on film becomes something that's elitist and uh, sort of like you know top top dollar. Whereas um, you know working with amazing producers, we were able to put together a way of working and finance that that meant that we didn't spend a lot of money, but we shot on film. And that's the thing that people tend seem to be most surprised about. People within the industry are constantly saying, well, how did you shoot it on film? It's just, well, just don't waste anything. You know, it's the most wasteful art form, the amount of sort of, like the lack of discipline that, you know, it's fine if you design a project that's very free flowing and, uh, and, and wasteful, that's fine if that's in your intention. But people kind of, you know, people are going like miles over budget. You think, what are you, who, how? <laughs> how did you do that, you know? Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I, I love film, you know, my favourite film of last year was a digital film. So I'm not like a, I'm not a snob about it. 
um, I think sometimes I sometimes I see films that are shot on film that I don't like because I don't feel there's the work's gone into it. And other times I see a film that's shot digitally, and you can just see the amount of work and heart and soul that's gone into it. So I love you know I love all all, all sorts of film, but personally the my my strength is is working with with film. I think certainly the, working with film is the thing that makes me excited to get up in the morning and if you're going to make films I think you've just got to love what you're doing and any other way of working I wouldn't have that enjoyment and I think that's probably there's a lot of people who feel like that I think well we're out of time there um, can I just say it's great to get you back on the cinematologist your spiritual podcast home <laughs> we knew about you many years before Mark don't, did. don't worry I, don't <laughs> I do keep mentioning you as yeah, I know, I know, I know. And, you're, and, and hopefully I'll still be on the podcast when my career's gone down <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll keep you there don't worry about it um, but you know please join me in thanking the brilliant Mark Jenkins thank you listen to that the other day because at the festival I was not I wasn't around for that session I was off doing uh, another thing so it was really interesting to hear it kind of separate from the weekend and yeah I thought you did a really great job of contextualizing his his kind of career and drawing out those threads of both form and content from like golden burn and and vertical shapes into into what what bait is and also yeah there was a lot of stuff there that I haven't heard him sort of talk about uh, and read a lot of interviews with him this year and talked to him so yeah kind of good job and what was your what was your thinking in terms of approaching the the conversation yeah cheers man um it's interesting because uh, b asked me you know how much preparation you have to put in for q a's and i said well if it's if it's a, a full screening which we didn't have this time you know generally you're asking four or five questions afterwards to kind of warm the audience up and then it's over to them because you've only got 20 minutes but these ones I've done before where it's, it is an hour or so and there are clips kind of welded in uh, to the to the narrative. So you've got to kind of paint a narrative and it's whether you go, how much you sort of go chronologically. And this seemed, you know, it seemed obvious because we were talking a lot about Golden Burn, which, which is his first feature, although, you know, that is a contentious, a sort of contentious definition as, as Mark outlined at the beginning. But yeah, I wanted to talk about the ways in which his relationship to Cornwall, his development as a filmmaker, the kind of ups and downs of, of that, how he saw himself in relationship to the kind of films that he made. And then I, I sort of wanted to draw him out a little bit more on the politics of it, because I think I've seen him give a couple of Q&As where he's been ready to go, you know what I mean? And the questioner has sort of gone on to other things and I, and I felt that the, he, I wanted to let him have that sort of latitude, you know, as much as you do as a crowd. I mean, he doesn't need me to let him, but do you know what I mean? Set him up for that and maybe sort of push him in a few different directions when it comes to that politics. Because I think it's it's interesting in terms of the film and whether it's got a, a political agenda and whether that political agenda is very specifically kind of class-slashed-regionalist in terms of, Cornwall identity is this pure thing, which I think, you know, I don't think he's saying that 
But I think that there are sort of difficult ambivalences in the film. Like, say, for example, we talked a little bit there about the fact that European money comes into Cornwall and Cornwall votes leave. Do you know what I mean? And and there's sort of ambivalences around that. And I think that's what the film does allude to without setting a didactic political agenda up. And I think that sort of Mark talks about that. Although although he is he's very strident, I think, on that notion of of entitlement and but I think that 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 goes to a wider concern you know about the way that, that sort of British culture and culture generally of sociopolitics generally is is at the moment but I think that's one of the reasons that the film has struck a chord outside of the UK as well you know it's played all over the world and he's had very similar responses it's political in it's political because Mark is political and he's interested in society and culture and it's not a it's not a preachy, you know, these people are bad and these people are good treatise, but it contains a, a seething fury and uh, an interest in just uh, trying to unravel or just show, not even unravel, because it's how do you unravel the situation that we're in as a world, but, but to show the complexities and what those kind of effects have on people and how that builds, you know, in particular in the, in the character of Martin, like how all of these different, micro aggressions or you know these things that have happened and, and, and huge kind of life changes have have resulted in in his inability to navigate the world um and, and and what that what that what that that leaves on a person and when you hear mark talk about it it's it's clear that he he's driven by a, a desire to represent the world as he sees it um and not in a simplistic way either formally or or content and that was really interesting to hear that that perspective from him so passionately um, kind of uh, articulated. Yeah, and I think there's also a sort of a politics in the aesthetic that maybe is not something that is a conscious thing. But, you know, it's interesting, like, say, for example, to, to hear him talk about Cornwall as, as a theme park. You know what I mean? And we're t- we, in the last few weeks and months, people have been talking about kind of like theme park aesthetics, haven't they? And, and, and I think that when he talked in the Q&A about the the local fisherman who had seen his film and proceeded to sort of place it in a kind of cinematic context. And he, he was like, yeah, you know, of course people are smart enough and, and understand that this is a particular kind of visual process or, or, or something is going on here that is outside of the mainstream way that films normally look. And I think that that, you know, it pertains to perhaps there is a, there is a politics of the image here and, and and because the film has done so well and so many people have sort of responded to it, it does tell you something about the way the audiences are perhaps taken for granted or filmmakers don't expect them to, to work. And, and that separation between here's a mainstream audience and here's a, here's an art house audience is something that I think is, is, is fundamentally problematic. And hopefully it like, you know, a film like Bates shows that, if the if the film industry and and the the concerns and the aims of of say the British film industry were better aligned, then then you would see a much more diverse kind of kind of filmmaking, you know, in 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 wider places. I mean, there's places that we and you can know and can go and see these films, but I think you know it's very difficult unless it's to say somebody who wants to see an interesting film, but is not going to be sort of on film Twitter or reading you know the film magazines or what have you yeah i was talking to uh mark cosgrove from the watershed at the bfi recently about bait and uh we were both just kind of like isn't this brilliant 
you know, that this has happened. But we were talking about the fact that one of the things that's brilliant about it is that, yeah, it's it's done really well, you know, and it's had a really, a really big audience um, in the UK. And what's unusual is that films like Bait don't often get that. But that's not to say that it's a surprise that audiences have have enjoyed it, you know, which might sound like a contradiction, but, you know, of course, of course they would like it if they saw it, you know, it's a brilliant movie um, and it is fun and it is interesting to look at and it is, uh, it is about something and the performances are great. And I think as well, you know, it's, it, you know, Mark is such a visual person and his work with Dion Starr, who's kind of done, who did the, 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 the image and the design and the branding and stuff is, it just, there's something about it that drags you in instantly with that image, which is not necessarily, it's not planned as a, but it, 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 everything about the film works and you can see why people are like just drawn to, yeah, what's this about? This, I don't know what this is, but they're not turned off when they're in there. They're not turned off by the fact that it's black and white or that it's 16 mil or the sound, you know, they just go with it because, because the audiences will, you know, and we were, sort of, we were sort of saying it's a reminder that the audiences can take something other than, you know, what, what, what they're given on a regular basis. And that's been really encouraging as well. The problem is whether that leads to anything. And I, I, I do worry that it will be held up as the kind of the forerunner of a renaissance because, not because it doesn't deserve to be, but because so many films have, have done that. But there's this, the structural the structural waves underneath it are not necessarily going to, are going to be there to actually, to, to impact on it. So I hope that, I hope that it kind of does lead to more adventurous programming across the place. But, but what's also encouraging is that Mark doesn't care. No. Mark, you know, <laughs> he's like in the sense that he, he already knows what he's going to do next and he's yeah. already working on what he's going to do next and yeah. he's just going to do it. Um, and he's not a filmmaker who is thinking, Oh now, yeah, now I can do this. Like, yeah, because he's, he's, he's seasoned enough. An individual enough to know to know that, that that those two things in terms of what an audience can take and want and and what they're given and what the the film industry at all its levels kind of gives them are not always aligned very rarely are they so. mark's definitely not interested in being so, sort of the the bellwether of a renaissance you know what i mean because he's not interested in those sort of taxonomies and, and because it's a fool's errand really i think trying to sort of say oh yeah here's this wave because all of that is structural and economic it's not nothing that that a filmmaker per se can do i mean i i just hope it opens the right doors for him or at least sort of gives him a position where he can he can have opportunities to make more films that then will will develop further his mark as a filmmaker and like say for example the the comparison way would say something like the silver i think is an interesting one because you know, on the one hand, that on that site sample poll, the Sylvania was number one, and I think that that is such a a film that that sits within the art house cinematic discourse so readily in terms of the the person who made it and the background and the support that that person has had. I don't want to sort of say that the the subject matter is not important because I think it is important and I think it's an incredibly interesting film, but I think there's a sort of Bait doesn't sit in... It doesn't come from that same filmmaking complex, I think. I don't, I'm struggling to find the right words for it, but it but it seems to me that, that that's a film that... that I'm not surprised that that's number one on the Sight and Sound poll because it fits into that kind of sensibility of a... 
you know, a film going audience in London who is interested in, in, in sort of cinema speaking to itself and, and that kind of thing. And I'm not saying again, like that, that that doesn't have interesting issues around sort of gender identity and power structures and relationships and all that, all that kind of, and even, even class to a certain extent. But I think there's an anger and a rawness to bait that gives it that thing that, that makes it an important film, you know, a very important film for, for the moment and is doing something I think beyond what a film like The Souvenir is doing. Which is a subjective yeah. thing. I, I, I know. I mean, I think, but I think, that, I think you, you know, I know, I know, but I think you look, uh, Souvenir played gangbusters at Sundance to a, you know, and there's very few British critics at Sundance because it's so expensive. And it played really well in Berlin and again, huge international, you know, and, and, and both are examples of a filmmaker, filmmakers who are known to cinephile circles, you know, moving into a completely different space you know and to see a filmmaker like Joanna Hogg see a woman top the sight and sound pole with a film which is you know just so kind of endlessly cinematic in its tone in its construction in its aesthetic in its approach in its kind of they're both resolute in telling exactly the story they want to tell which is a deeply personal one about where they come from and you know fuck what anyone thinks you know, which I just think they're both equally powerful. They both <laughs> they both do amazing things with under underrepresented underrepresented points of view. And what I mean by that is, although we see a lot of rich people on screen, you know, we don't see them like they are in the souvenir. We don't see them as nakedly human um, as they're portrayed. And and Hogg's openness to kind of you know mine her own past, I think, is is kind of remarkable. And, and, you know, not brave, but it is something that, that men are lauded for doing all the time. And it just feels like, why are we not lauding this woman for doing it? Scorsese's the Irishman. <laughs> you know, how many plaudits can you give to a man who's being really reflective? And these are, you know, essentially very rich murderers, <laughs> you know, but we love them. You know, we love spending three and a half hours with these rich people who murder people and are made rich by murder. But we can't spend two hours with a woman uh, of privilege kind of wrestling with that privilege I find that really problematic um, as a kind of and I'm really pleased to see the souvenir on that top of that list because I think it would have been easy to put Tarantino on there it would have been easy to put Scorsese on there and I, I just I, I, I just find this kind of and just being in Berlin and knowing there was two British films in Berlin that were the talk of the festival and they were both shot on film uh, and they were both very personal stories giving us perspectives that are not seen in that way was so exciting and like everything when it comes down to well why does why can't it be why does it have to be one or the other it's just it's the problem over and over again with we're just we're trying to find ways of pitting films against each other and making everything a competition and it's like just that's kind of annoying because it's like we should be talking about both these films and and celebrating them as kind of british masterpieces because that's what i think they are Mm. yeah no no i'd take all of that on board and maybe it's just again a there is a slight because I didn't like the souvenir as much as as much as you did, and I, but I take all of the, the, those things on board. And that hypocrisy when it comes to sort of big films that that Scorsese or Tarantino have made is definitely there. I'm not arguing that. Yeah, let me okay. So let's just let me ask a question in terms of like, could, could you have imagined you know that could you have imagined that that Mark would have a film in the Sight and Sound top ten? No, not at all. No, and it's exciting. It's so exciting, it and it's like it's an amazing achievement. Mm. Uh, for him one that we knew was deserved and I was talking to Kings about this this morning it's like you know just every day it's like can you believe it and it's like it feels it feels great 
that 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 he's getting he's getting that level of recognition and that people are finally seeing what we've known for a long time, which is this guy is a genius. You know, this guy is an absolute he's one of our best filmmakers. He's a brilliant artist. Um and just can't be more pleased for him in terms of in terms of being able to every year I read the list. Every year and you know, you know, I love lists. And it's just so excited to to be able to just to just see it so close up and see someone who deserve who actually deserves it get to that get to that level um, it's just but amazing. That, I, I, I think that's very true and I, but again it relates to what I what a little bit what I was saying before because it's kind of like the reason I say no I couldn't expect that is because I just don't think that you know a, a sort of Cornish filmmaker at the back of the on shooting on 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 sixteen millimeter would ever be sort of taken seriously in in terms of being in that you know, in that realm. And, 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 and again, you know, there's the, I understand what you're saying about Joanna Hogg and the sort of gender aspect of it. Yeah. There should be a woman there. And if it was, a if it was a man with, with a similar kind of film, we may be lauding that. But I think that there are other dynamics of, there are other power dynamics that stop certain people succeeding or, or make, make it more difficult. The framework's more difficult for them to succeed from where, from whatever their position is. So I think that that is a complicated thing, and I just you know it is great exactly like you're saying that that you know he he got accepted to Berlin, and you know that, that it was the critics there and the the audiences there just did see this film, you know I mean think of how many films are at Berlin, and it was one of the sort of one of the films that was on everybody's lips. Amazing, yeah, it was phenomenal, yeah, exciting. It's been a privilege to be yeah kind of part of the journey of the film. Uh, and his career to this point. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thanks so much, Mark, for um, you know coming back to us and uh, keeping us on your radar. Not that you would never have have not done that, but you know what I mean. It's just it's just great that he gives us the access and the time and and discusses everything with us. But you know he's down there. He's going to be down there teaching with you and doing the crits and all that very soon. He'll be back to reality. Well, I mean, yeah, if if. If he is even down here, do you know what I mean? Because I think that's the thing. It's like every week it just gets. Um, I don't, you know, I've, I've we've hardly seen him here um, because it's just been such a whirlwind year. Um, and with the Biffers, you know, and there's, you know, there's BAFTA nominations, and I'm sure, I'm sure he's going to be in there. You know, uh, hopefully at the, you know, at the kind of best British film level. And the well, if he's not, if if he's not on the best British film list, then you know what I mean. What, what... It's not. It's not like you would say, "What's the point?" But it's kind of like that's when it kicks back in, and you think, "Yeah, yeah." Of course, he wouldn't be. Yeah, yeah. You know but I mean? I, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that, and pretty sure yeah. that, that will happen. Um, and then, yeah. So who knows when our paths will cross again? So it was. I'm really grateful to Mark for for taking the time out of an insanely busy schedule to to come to Luton uh, for Filmstock and and sort of and share his his wisdom and experiences with with the audience. That was. And and obviously for the podcast as well, that was yeah really really gratifying. So thanks, Mark. And thanks for, thanks to you for letting me do that. I appreciate it. That was a pleasure. Yeah, it was. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed being a listener on that. You know, it was great. It's interesting, isn't it? Just to sort of finish off, and I know we've we've come to the coming to the end now. But the how how much maybe the the, the Q and A is a sort of art in and of itself. The hosting of the Q and A. I always sort of find that now, and and different people do it different kinds of ways and I don't know I don't know have you got any thoughts on on that <laughs> yeah no I think that it's um it kind of goes but I mean I think we've talked about this on the podcast but like you know realizing in the last couple of years that I'm really interested in conversation you know and I take that I take that very seriously and kind of doing the 
sort of tr- setting up these podcasts at the festival the way I did was was a chance to have conversations you know because kind of yeah like I agree with what you're saying about a post-film Q&A is a very specific thing and often it's just trying to touch a lot of bases and then and get the audience involved um, but these feel like real opportunities you know that the, and the podcasters kind of has cultivated that sense of actually this is a space where we can do something really interesting and that what was what was interesting about film stock was that we didn't do any of that in the first run we didn't really have the space we didn't really take the space you know because we just wanted to show so many films and that clip-based long conversation was not so so it was interesting with 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 the film stock audience how much they loved all of those sessions because they were like wow just the chance to spend an hour listening to a filmmaker talk about what they do and so many different filmmakers across the weekend was just a kind of a thrill um and more and more that's what i'm interested in doing you know a lot of the stuff i do for film criticism now is interview based because i just love it i love you know i love doing this podcast with you for that reason as well and and hearing you it's great hearing you talk to mark for an hour because it's just mm. that's that's the content that's the content i yeah, want yeah, you yeah. know that's the yeah, hot yeah, content yeah. i'm interested in Great, and but I think the wheelhouses of us do slightly differ in a way, don't they? So, and that that's always useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? To have that. I mean, the, the stuff, obviously, um, the sort of Kieran Evans and the Jeannie Finley and, and the Mike Carey um, Q and As were definitely in your wheelhouse, just in terms of both knowing them and knowing what to ask, but also in terms of the kind of filmmaking that you're talking about. So, uh, and I was at the Jeannie Finley one, and, and I think people will will really like that, especially uh, fans of a certain TV show, of course. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Great. So uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Um, so thanks very much, Neil. We'll, we'll talk very soon, of course. We will, yeah, in about 30 seconds. <laughs> oh, the, secret, um, the secrets are out. Yes, the, the, the time travel exploits of uh, podcast presenting and cool. yeah no this was this was great fun so yeah thank you no problem um so yeah thanks very much to our listeners for the continued support you can get in touch with us on the usual channels we're on twitter at cinematologists on the email cinematologists at gmail.com and of course yeah if you really want to support what we do um you could have a look at the patreon page get our, all of our bonus material we've got a newsletter coming out very soon and other bonus material to come you know, or if you just want to support the podcast and help us out a little bit in our running costs, that would be great. But until next time, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. They tumble and fight. They are beautiful. On the hilltops at night.